Good morning. D Dave became a granddad again yesterday, and Sue, little boy, a little boy, signed up for Liverpool, I think, already. <laughs> if you have your Bible with you, I'd like you to turn with me, please, into the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15. And I am conscious this morning, last time I spoke, I spoke on the cross. You might not remember. I spoke about the cross, and this morning I'm speaking about the cross again. And I'm aware, as I speak about the cross this morning, that I'm standing on the holiest of holy ground. And I feel in myself a total inadequacy of being able to convey to you what I believe God would say to us this morning. But Holy Spirit, help me as I speak and help these wonderful people as they listen in Jesus' name. Mark 15, 1, I'm reading out the NIV version. Hope you brought your Bibles with you. It's a good practice to bring your Bible with you. You don't just look up at the screen, but we open up the Word of God together. I know some of you have it on these little iPads and things. I'm never quite sure whether you're watching, you're reading the Scriptures or playing Pac-Man or something. Pac-Man, that dates me. Mark chapter 15, NIV version. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law and the whole Sanhedrin reached a decision. They bound Jesus, led him away and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now it was a custom at the feast to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate, knowing it was out of envy that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed over to be crucified. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that's the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him. 
they twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on the knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means a place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it, and they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was the third hour when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it up in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. And in the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, but he can't save himself. Let this Christ, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, Listen, he's calling Elijah. One man ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a stick, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. And with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. Amen. It is without doubt throughout eternity cross, the cross will figure centrally in the heavens. The very song of heaven is a song of the lamb that was slain, whose blood was shed to purchase for God a people from every tongue and for every tribe and from every nation. 
And I believe that God would have us hold the death of his son with the greatest and the utmost of reverence. When we speak of the cross, we stand on the holiest of holy ground. We cannot think of his death too often. Everything else is secondary to the cross. Here in the divinely inspired gospel of Mark, which we've been looking at, we've just read, we are ushered to the foot of that cross. And we're exposed to the mysteries of the cross and discover that those mysteries go beyond simply the physical sufferings of Jesus. As we read this account, uh, we notice how little information is given to us about the crucifixion itself, the physical suffering that Jesus experienced. It's interesting, in verse 24, it simply says, and they crucified him. Wouldn't we have expected more detail, more information, more graphic detail, some explanation to the process of what was taking place? It simply says, and they crucified him. But it's because Mark's gospel was written for a people who understood what crucifixion was like. They didn't need that explanation. His brevity here in verse 24 is not to minimize the Savior's suffering in any way. But, but listen, this is so important that we hear this. Mark wants our understanding of the cross to be theological, not merely human. Not to just understand the cross from a human perspective from what could be comprehended with our natural eye, but to see beyond what we could see with the natural eye and to see what is being seen in the heavens. Had we been present there at the cross, we would have been stunned. We would have been staggered. We would have been appalled. We would have we would have averted our eyes from the gruesome, barbaric scene that we see before us. It's not like that nice paintings we see Jesus serenely upon the cross. It's not like that Jesus on a Catholic cross. It's nothing like that. This was horrific. He was brutalized. He was a blooded mess. But all those observations of the human eye would not be sufficient to enable us to see and understand the mystery of what was actually taking place before us, because the suffering of the cross is far more than the physical suffering that Jesus endured. Mark's gospel takes us to the foot of that cross, where we can Hear the Saviour's final cry. Telelestai, I mentioned it a few weeks ago, that final cross, when he cries, it is finished. Telelestai, it literally means the debt has been paid. The sentence has been served. The victory has been achieved. 
That's what the word means. When Jesus cries out, it is finished. It is not a cry of despair, but a cry that says everything has been accomplished. There's no more debt to pay. We hear that final cry. We observe that final breath and we see him die. We see him die. From nine o'clock in the morning, when Jesus was first put on the cross, till noon, Jesus had been there hanging on that cross. He had been whipped, he had been scourged, he had been mocked, he had been punched, he had been beaten, he had been spat upon, a crown of thorns had been rammed upon his head, spikes driven through his hands and feet, tearing and ripping at his flesh. And he's there, stripped naked, for that is what happens in a Roman crucifixion, to add to the humiliation. Gasping for breath, subject to public humiliation and ridicule and scorn. And yet, he did not resist and he did not protest. When he was betrayed, when he was arrested, when he was falsely accused, when he was convicted, when he was brutalized by the soldiers, he did not resist or protest. In fact, it appears that his preoccupation at this time was more for those around him than for himself. It's a remarkable truth. As he staggers, from that place where he had been brutalized to the cross, so badly beaten he could hardly walk. He sees these women around him weeping for him and he stops and says, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves. As those Roman soldiers drove spikes into his hands and his feet and lifted him up upon that cross, he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. As a dying thief at his side who had been mocking him, hurling insults at him, cries to him for help, Jesus, full of grace and compassion, comforts him, saying, today you will be with me in paradise. And as he tries to look through those beaten eyes, he sees Mary, his mother, John, his friend, in front of him and says, woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. For the first three hours, it appears his preoccupation has been not for himself, but for others. But then, but then at noon, a most strange thing begins to take place. Darkness comes and overwhelms the land for the next three hours. Darkness covers 
the land. This darkness is not a natural phenomenon, but appears to be an atmospheric confirmation that Jesus, who is the light of the world, is being extinguished. None of the gospel writers say anything about what takes place during that three hours. Only that it culminates in Jesus crying out in a loud, loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that cry, that, that terrible cry, that, that awful cry, that, that horrific cry, informs us that what the Saviour is suffering was so much deeper than the physical pain. And for us to understand that cry, that awful cry, we need to go back some hours to a garden called the Garden of Gethsemane to see what takes place on the cross for the sequel to what had taken place in the garden. We never understand Calvary without understanding the garden. And it's that garden of Gethsemane that prepares us for Calvary. In your Bibles, go to Mark chapter 14 and verse, well, starting at verse 32. This is holy ground, folks. Verse 32, they went to a place called Gethsemane and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James and John along with him and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed, if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Could you not watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Sorry, the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Once more he went away and prayed the same thing. And when he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. And then returning the third time, he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Enough, the hour has come. Luke, the son of man, is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here, come, here comes my betrayer. Prior to his arrest, Jesus and his disciples go to this place called Gethsemane to pray. And entering the garden, the Bible tells us here that suddenly Jesus is overwhelmed, overwhelmed with distress and troubled. And, pray, and, and, and verse 34 here says, tells us his soul becomes greatly sorrowful even to the point of death. Suddenly, What's happening here? 
What is taking place? Why suddenly this extreme distress? You know, the cross was no surprise to Jesus. He'd been courageously speaking uh, of his death, making his way to Jerusalem. He, he knew what lay before him. He knew what the prophets had spoken about him. There'd been no sign of this distress before. At that last supper that they'd just been celebrating together, there'd been no sense of this, of this tormented soul that suddenly we are reading about. They'd enjoyed a meal together. They'd, con con they'd concluded their time together by singing a hymn. There'd been Psalm 118, uh, which goes, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. His covenant faithfulness endures forever. But the moment he steps into this garden, everything suddenly changes, and he's overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He's overwhelmed. In Luke's gospel, Luke was a doctor. In Luke's gospel, Luke says that Jesus was in such agony of spirit that his sweat fell to the ground like great drops of blood. There's a condition. Medics will probably know of it. Hematohydrosis. Where the, under incredible stress, the capillaries rupture, mixed with the sweat and your sweat comes out like blood. What is taking place? What has brought him to this point of death? Why this sudden and overwhelming sorrow? Why this agony of spirit? Why this distress of soul? What is taking place? What is he seeing now? What is he seeing? He sees the cup. It's the consideration of the cup. In Gethsemane, Jesus contemplates the cup and we overhear him praying. The content of the cup fills his heart and mind to such a degree that he prays, remove this cup from me. The cup, of course, is a biblical metaphor that speaks of that which has been appointed to us by God. If you look in the Old Testament, that phrase is used often. Occasionally, it's used about something good. I'm delighted to say, my cup overflows. But mostly in the Old Testament, it's about the cup of the wrath and the judgment and the anger of God. And as Jesus, the Holy One of God, gazes into the cup, he is confronted with the horrific reality of becoming the one to absorb the sin-bearing wrath of God. That is what is in the cup for him. The horror of becoming the object of the righteous and furious wrath of God for our sin and in so doing, being forsaken by God. He looks in the cup. And in looking in this cup, he sees the sin of all mankind, every foul 
evil sin that you could imagine. And that's what this cup contains. This is what he sees as he looks in the cup of God. And this experience for him is so horrific, so overwhelming that he cannot remain upright. The weight of it all causes him to fall to the ground. God, Jesus, God the Son, prostrate on the, on the ground with his face in the dirt, saying, Abba, Father, Abba, Father, if it's possible, take this cup away. He's pinned to the ground under the weight and the horror of what it will mean to drink the content of this cup. He's prostrate, prostrate under his commitment to the will of God and to his overwhelming love for you and for me. I want you to see him there. And in seeing him there, know just how awful sin is. He came to the garden to spend time with his father, looking for an open heaven, and instead he finds hell. And he staggered. And he staggers. He falls to the ground. And he's praying, Father, Father, this is horrific. Father, this is, this is overwhelming to be the object of your right, righteous and furious wrath. Having the weight of the world's sin placed upon me, to be crushed by you, to endure this while being forsaken by you. Abba, Father, is there another option? It's so appalling, so horrific, that he prays for an alternative to drinking the cup. Three times he prays. Three times he prays. And at the end of each prayer, at the end of each prayer, this one lying prostrate on the ground, this one who says, I know my Father always hears me. Here's what he, here's what he hears. Here is what he hears. Silence. He hears silence. He heard only the sound of silence because there was no alternative. If there was an alternative, the Father would have provided it. What father would not do anything for their child? But there was no alternative. And so there was silence. God so loved the world that when his only begotten son asked for an alternative, there was silence. And Jesus so loved you and so loves me that in response to that silence, he resolves to drink the cup. 
we, we cannot enter this garden and emerge unchanged. Because when we enter this garden, we become aware of the seriousness of our sin. The love of God is revealed in this silence. Listen to the silence. The silence is deafening. It shouts and it proclaims the love of God for you and for me. Listen to the Father's silence and then listen to the Son's resolve. Not my will, but your will. And Jesus resolves to drink the cup. And on the cross, he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That cry is Gethsemane being experienced. He is now drinking that cup. The cup of the righteous fury and wrath of God that he saw in the, car, in the garden, he is now drinking on the cross. And as darkness covers the land, he's been made sin with our sin. And for three hours is the object of the wrath of God. He's absorbing the sin of others. Jesus, the sinless one, sinks into the lowest, filthiest depths of hell as the waves and billows of God's wrath sweeps over him. For three hours. Wave after wave, your sin, my sin, the sin of the world, past, present, future, like great waves, foul and obscene. We're all being absorbed into the sinless, spotless Lamb of God, and he was alone. At this moment, his suffering is unique, it's horrific, it's indescribable horror. He can no longer keep silent. As a preacher, as a teacher, we get off of, get, stand up and speak so often, uh, and, and we want a little, little illustration to illustrate what uh, a point that we're making. But my friends, there's no, there's no illustration. There's no illustration that we could ever come up with that could illustrate what is going on for Jesus at this moment. My God. My God, why have you forsaken me? That cry has nothing to do with nails or thorns or whips or any other kind of physical pain. His pain is at bearing the, as being the object of the unmitigated wrath of God and being forsaken by God in the process. He has been forsaken by the Father. Up to this time, he was able to say, my father is always with me. My father always hears my voice, but not now. He is cut off from all fellowship with the father. He's cut off from all expressions of his love. He is cut off from all the rights and privileges of his son. He is cut off from all he has known throughout eternity. He's cut off from the father's smile. He's cut off from the father's favor. And he now hangs between heaven and earth with no home in either place. He is alone. We stand on holy ground when we speak of the cross.
when we take the cup. Oh, my friends. The scripture says when we do that, we should remember him. Remember his death. It's beyond our imagination. He drank the cup and he drank it all. He did not leave a drop in there for us to drink. He experienced the indescribable wrath of God that we may experience the amazing grace of God. He experienced being forsaken that we might experience being forgiven. He experienced the torments of hell that we might know the blessings of heaven. He drank the cup of God's wrath that I might drink the cup of God's forgiveness and blessing. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me that I might say nothing can separate me from the love of God. Behold, this love of God, this love of the Savior that leaves us speechless and amazed. When the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the Son of God. We're going to break bread together. To remember his death, that when we look in the cup that we drink and see that it has been emptied of all the wrath and righteous fury of God because he drank it all. We who have bowed our knee, we who have submitted our lives to Jesus, the one who gave his life for us, we can look into the cup and we can drink and all that we see in our cup is love and grace and forgiveness and peace and blessing and strength and wholeness and freedom and hope and life and acceptance. The cup is a cup of blessing because he took the cup of the wrath of God for us. Can we bring... Darling, please, Graham. Dave. Thank you. I have to say that I like the days pre-COVID when we had a loaf in front of us and we broke the loaf and shared each one from this one loaf when we had a cup which we passed around and drank from the same cup. I appreciate we need to do that in this time but Jesus' body was broken. Far more than the physical. Please, far more than the physical. Far more than the pain of six hours on the cross. When his body was broken, when his blood was shed, 
he was taking upon himself the punishment for your sin and for mine. We do this in remembrance of him. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Let's just sing for a minute, Dave. Can we sing that song? Some of you might not know this song. But never come to this table quickly. Always come to this table with the utmost of reverence. The utmost of reverence. This is holy ground.